Welcome to the October edition of Metro Cinema Presents Close Up, the podcast in which we discuss the future happenings at the Metro Cinema. This month we're going to be talking about October. Uh, throughout the show we're going to be hearing music from Soft Ions, Leonard J. Poole, Matthew Belton of Mangled Tapes in a variety of forms, Vision Breeders, Boosh and uh, whatever else I can find. And of course we are now very proudly a member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. <laughs> My name is Owen Armstrong, I'm the projectionist at Metro Cinema as well as the host of Metro Cinema Movie Trivia at the last Sunday of every month at the Tavern on White with this guy. That's me. That's him. I'm Nick. Yeah? Uh, what do you do, Nick? I'm a projectionist at Metro, a former operations manager, and a soon-to-be, once again, front of house manager. Nice. Yay. Sylvia. I am Sylvia Douglas. I'm a filmmaker, and I work at the Film and Video Arts Society of Alberta. And I used to work at Metro Cinema. I'm an avid patron of Metro Cinema. And this season, I'm the curator of the Kink on Screen series. Which we are going to talk about later on. Yeah. Yeah. And? And hey, I'm Heather. I am the vice president of Metro. I have co-hosted Movie Trivia now. Yes. Officially. Yes, you have. I also work at Fava. <laughs> and I chair the programming committee. Amazing. Well, thank you all for coming. So uh, let's start off on the first. Uh, starting on Tuesday the first and playing again on the third and the ninth is Stanley Nelson's documentary Miles Davis: Birth of the Cool, which is also part of the ongoing series Music Docs. This was made for PBS uh, originally for a series called American Masters, and uh, as well as a plethora of interviews with Davis's contemporaries, uh, reflections on his personal life, drug addiction, violent and abusive relationships and accompanied throughout by his own words, those spoken by Carl Lumley, who was also in The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, and will also be playing Dick Halloran in the upcoming Doctor Sleep. The film also traverses the racial implications of Davis's public image as an elegant, stylish, wealthy, and proud black American. His influence as an innovator and a pure artist can't really be understated, whether he enjoys music or not. Um, who's, has anyone actually listened to Miles Davis? <laughs> Yes. Because I should yeah. probably <laughs> clarify that before I, you know. So, yeah, what, what, is that, what does he mean to you? I mean, I'll be first to say that I have a very passive interest in jazz music. And, okay. like, obviously he's one of the ones that I've come across in my, my brief dabbles. And I enjoy it, but I, I am by no means an expert or a, a super fan. So that's that's where I'm coming from. And, I, the, yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I've always kind of recognize that Miles Davis is one of these people that you respect and also recognize as probably a horrible person, most definitely a horrible person in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, I, I do like his music. I, I feel like a lot of the stuff that seems to be covered in this documentary, I learned from the Ken Burns 10-part jazz series that came out a couple of decades ago. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's obviously more in-depth because that just kind of like spread out it was the entire history of jazz <coughs> ken burns yeah <laughs> there was also a fictionalized uh, film recently with um don Cheadle, wasn't there i think was there i think uh, so yeah yeah has anyone listened to bitches brew of course yeah bitches brew is a really important album for me and it's one that i've not stopped listening to since i very first heard it about 15, 20 years ago. Mm. It's really good to put on to silent films. Like if you have footage Ooh, that yeah. you've shot that's silent, it seems to always be like a great just, soundtrack just for, you know, just regular life. I Not to move too far off topic, but another fascinating film that I wanted to bring up was, uh, has anyone seen The Stuart Hall Project? 
Uh, okay, so it's directed by British filmmaker John Acomfra, who is co-founder of the Black Audio Film Collective. And uh, primarily it centers around cultural theorist Stuart Hall, uh, who is considered to be one of the founding figures of the New Left and a key architect of cultural studies in Britain. But the film also draws heavily on the music of Miles Davis, who was an artist of particular significance to Hall. Um, so with the help of uh, sound engineers, I'm kind of paraphrasing from a, a lot of different sources here, but with the sound of, uh, help of sound designers Trevor Matheson and Robin Fellows, a conference the Stuart Hall project is an example of improvisation between the narrative device and jazz music. Confer explains the Miles Davis music provided you with a kind of marker of time, which is much more explicit, I felt, than the unfinished conversation, which was a multi-layered three-screen installation, which he uh, similarly crosses the memory landscape of Stuart Hall. Miles was there because I thought it gave you a kind of sonic map of a devolving post-war world, but it crucially also gave you the dates, which subliminally told you the context, uh, content in which the music as well as the images and Hall's voice were unfolding. Uh, the film ties in the music of Miles Davis along with the overarching themes of identity formation, roots, uh, nation state and how one's birth ties in with one's location. Davis's music provides the opportunity for the viewer to experience a journey of transformation through his music. Pointing out the history of jazz music is important because the roots of jazz are tied deeply within the African-American experience. Jazz music is created with the intention of having instruments played together in harmony, but also having the opportunity for, for uh, instruments and music to move into improvisational territory. This is similar to Stuart Hall's thoughts about identity formation, in that sometimes one's identity is harmonious and clearly understood, while other, insta in, uh, other instances um, a person's identity is a chaotic cross-pollination of culture and ideas. That's also uh, part of the relevance of Miles Davis, I think, yeah, to yeah. certain people. Contextually relevant. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. The film is certainly going to go... In, I've read you know, several reviews of it today, one from The New Yorker and a couple of other places, mm -hmm. and it does gonna go, go into a lot more detail about his very um, violent relationships with women, mm -hmm. of which there were many. Um, uh, but you know, not to entirely discredit his sort of worth as an artist, which you know, he's one of those people you, know, you can't really, you can't take his influence away from him. Yeah. Um, but it's also important not to forget that he had this very kind of like you know, uh, tempestuous life outside of that as well, mm -hmm. which in some ways probably informed you know him as an innovator. Yeah. Well, I, th I think the trailer kind of goes into how he was classically trained and how that was something that a lot of jazz musicians were resistant to. They felt mm -hmm. that it would kind of um, dilute what, you know, kind of the culture of the community. And But I think that that's probably, you know, what sets him apart in certain ways. I mean, obviously he wasn't the only jazz musician to be classically trained, but... No. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, anyway, that's on the that's on the 1st, 1st of October at... Let's get that old calendar up there. Uh, seven o'clock and that's initially it's going to be part of Music Docs and then we're showing it another two times after that so there's plenty of opportunity to see it and you know you should come and listen to some Miles Davis music uh, It gives me great pleasure to welcome Maggie Hardy back to the podcast Maggie's been curating a series entitled Silent Sundays which is a loving tribute to great films of the silent era so far we've had Sherlock Jr. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Cave of Mexico and now to close out what we hope will be just the first curatorial visit to the silent era of cinema we have a perfect film for October in Benjamin Christensen's 1922 documentary styled tale Haxan also known as Haxan Witchcraft Through the Ages so Maggie welcome Hi So this is one I know you've been gearing up to from the beginning Yeah uh, So tell us a little bit about the significance of Haxan and its place in, uh, in cinema history Well 
Uh, Hacksand's really special to me because I saw it at the Metro Cinema many years ago, uh, playing with Burn Witch Burn, and the two and Shadow of the Eagle, and those films together were just in entrancing. Like I'd never seen anything like Hacksand before at that point. My exposure to silent cinema was mm, largely the basics: Caligari, Nosferatu. Metropolis, yada yada. Yeah. But Haxan is just delightful and terrifying. It blends so seamlessly so many things I love, uh, especially the stop motion animation and the early magic, which went a lot into how film special effects are done today, it was mostly magic effects. And for me, seeing that and thinking of like, Svankmeyer, there's uh, this great scene with a little stop-motion devil mm. uh, tumbling through a hole in a door. And it just, uh, it, it's so evocative and so unique that, that it's, a, a, it's really unforgettable. But Haxan itself in cinema history is pretty remarkable. Yeah. So not only was it not necessarily based on anything. It was it was partly inspired by the Malaeus Maleficarnum, uh, the witch's hammer. Yeah. Uh, but you know, so was Witchfinder General and stuff like that. But at that point in time, original films weren't necessarily a huge thing. Uh, many people weren't making features with original ideas. They were all still based on stories and. Uh, you know, radio plays and actual plays and things like that. So from a narrative perspective, Haxan is rather original uh, because it, it was not necessarily based on an existing piece of literature or storytelling. In 1922, that was kind of wild. Not yeah. many people had made original films like that. And even today, when you look at the percentages of films coming out of Hollywood, not a ton of them are actually original ideas. Most no, things no, no. Are that would be remakes inspired by a story thought of by. That would be an interesting percentage to to note. As you say, yeah, it wasn't uh, necessarily based on a on a specific source, and he spent two years studying the uh, uh, Malleus Maleficarum. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Which is a 15th century uh, German guide for inquisitors. Um, so really that doesn't describe what the film is about at all. It's in four parts. Yeah. But I mean, another um, fascinating thing about the film as well is it's been recut and remade so many times that to find a version of it in its original, well, the, the closest thing to its original form is, is hard to do. I know it's been officially remade by the Swedish Film Institute three times, I think, or re-released yeah. at least. Yeah, uh, actually, the mo most recently was in 2016, and that version still hasn't been made available to the public. Right, it okay. was shown at festivals, but it's not on home video, and that's not the version we're getting. No. We're doing the Criterion Collection version, which I believe is the second okay. of the Swedish Film Institute's reconstructions. Which, according to my notes, was released in 2007. Yes. Possibly. I mean, the, fir the actually, the first and only version I've seen was the one from 1968 with added narration from William Burroughs. I think I've mentioned that to you before. Um, and that great jazz score. And the amazing jazz score by Daniel Humer. Yeah, amazing. And But it was also released on Metro Pictures. That's weird. Uh, or not. The very first 
heart is a kind of medieval reconstruct. It's very much about the scientific history right, of witches. Right, right, yeah. It uh, goes in, a bit into demonology and uh, hell. Then the second part is with the witch's Sabbath. The third part, it goes through torture and inquisition methods, and that's where it kind of talks about the stigma of mental illness and yeah. the sexism of witchcraft and why it was so many women who were killed and things like that. And then the fourth part involves the demonic possession of a nun. Okay. But there there I mean there's a fair bit else going on. But yeah. That super roughly that's it. I mean we've just, I described it as a documentary styled uh film and to an extent I think it was perhaps intended it's a, it's a it's a fiction documentary if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh very very much so because you can tell that the intent is to educate. Yeah. It's kind of like the dramatic reconstruction of, you know, it's the very series. first dateline. Yeah, in a sense. And it, it brings these stories into relatable kind of parables yeah. for people. And uh, so while it does run the gamut of this is actual history and fact, it also has these fantastical horror asides. Uh, can you tell us anything about the version that you're showing that I had? Is there, what's the music element? Well, it's from a number of composers, but it was reconstructed for the Criterion release. When, when the film was originally released, Christensen toured around with it. He had a score that was director sanctioned. That was his version. He also did like a kind of professorial talk beforehand mm -hmm. and there was a lengthy playbill but all of the versions from the sw initial Swedish run are gone uh, but from the second Danish run there are still playbills and that's what this score has been reconstructed from. I was thinking about two different routes. I either wanted to compose my own score like I did for 20,000 Leagues or I wanted to do a Plunderphonics score mm. kind of like Marauder's Metropolis yeah. and it would be like here's some Rammstein here's <laughs> some you know uh, a good playlist for the movie and I, I would really love to explore that and uh, you know select audio bits that I think work with it but if you're not familiar with Plunder Phonics by the way go and check out John Oswald um, you'll learn a thing or two and he's hilarious yeah uh, and so yeah I, I really wanted to do that but I felt that playing at Vanilla would be a good choice first, and then if I get to do Silent Sundays again, mm. maybe I'll be able to do Haxan again, because it's a great movie, and I would love to present it with music of my choosing. And very, very seldom shown, so I suppose it uh, is one more reason to perhaps try and show it again. So as you just mentioned, this is going to be the last in the series, Yeah. Uh, and I think I've asked you before if you've thought about bringing it back. I'm pretty sure I know the answer is still you'd like to? Yeah, I, I would like to, uh, but right now there's nothing solid or known. So that is going to be screening on the 13th of October at 3.30. Yep. Get there early. Very because time. It's, it's right, it's just before <laughs> all hell breaks loose. And it's the 13th. It's the 13th, exactly. Not a Friday, though, but it'll do. Also in October is uh, an annual thing. On the 31st, that's Halloween. A double bill, and I think it's well. It's definitely House and Haunted Hill is a regular. 
House on Haunted Hill is regular. We skipped it last year. I think there's been two years we haven't done it, but we'll bring it back for the sixth one. Okay. And also... The Beast Must Die. The Beast Must Die, which is a which, hell of a name for a band or a film. I love It's an amicus movie and it's brilliant. It's like the one time they tried to get into black exploitation <laughs> okay. and werewolf films at the same time. Which is just an irresistible combination of words. It is. Let alone an enacted idea of film. Starting at 7 o'clock uh, with House and Haunted Hill and then uh, 9 o'clock The Beast Must Die. One thing, if you've been to Metro and you've seen House and Haunted before, we've done, is it called it? Emerjo. Emerjo. Uh, it's the original William Castle gimmick that came with House on Haunted Hill. Uh, most theaters playing it were expected to do this gimmick. We have the best one I've ever seen. There's been a, a lot of theaters try and remount it, but from the few videos I've seen, ours blows all of those fish out of the water. I won't spoil it, but there is a very special guest at the film's peak. That pretty much covers it. So we've got um, we've got Haxan on the 13th. Uh, don't miss it because it's uh, definitely an experience. And, it, and among, uh, not just a, as a piece of you know film history, but as a piece of silent film history of the four films you've chosen, these are some really interesting picks. And this is just definitely a perfect film for October, but also just a perfect film to watch, which is, again, so, so rarely seen uh, publicly. So definitely come and see that. And then the 31st is always a hoot. Fantastic. All right, Maggie, thank you very much for coming. Thank you all. For Metro Retro, we're showing Dolomite from 1975. This is, of course, leading up to the release of the Craig Brewer film Dolomite Is My Name, which hits theaters the same week, I believe. I think it's like later that week. Probably. Mm -hmm. And uh, Craig Brewer made Hustle and Flow, which won an Oscar for the soundtrack. Well, he didn't win an Oscar. He didn't Three win Six Mafia Three Six won Mafia won an Oscar. Honestly. That was, a one of that the was best. when John Stewart hosted the Yeah, Oscar. one of the yeah. best acceptance speeches at the Oscars of all time, if you're interested. Um, he also made the remake of Footloose. Arguably less good. Um, and he's also directing the upcoming sequel to Coming to America, which is also called Coming to America. But the two is a number this time, oh. as opposed to the word. So Eddie, Eddie Murphy's and then really, presumably really coming back. Has anyone actually seen Dolomite? I watched the trailer nope. for it. Yeah. It looks pretty um, ridiculous. <laughs> I've seen similar films of the era. Yes. But do they have yeah. a gang of kung fu ladies that back them <laughs> up? Like um, that? Because that's pretty cool no, to me. No, no, they don't. Yeah. The Dolomite kung has his kung fu gang. The kung fu ladies are all very, <laughs> they're very well trained. Very well trained. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bizarre because it just comes out of absolutely nowhere. But like, so yeah, it's this classic of uh, of the black exploitation era uh, from '75, and it features Rudy Ray Moore uh, performing as Dolomite, who was uh, one of his early stand-up characters. And I think he first appeared on Moore's stand-up album "Eat Out More Often," <laughs> which I suspect may be a euphemism. Wow. So, I, so having not seen the original film and mm -hmm. seeing having seen the trailer for the new film, is the original also somewhat of a parody of black exploitation already? It's, it's a comedy, yes. A satire, absolutely, wow. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's like he is a comedian, and this is his kind of alter ego, mm. right? That he's yeah, then exactly, yeah. developed into a full. So, in film. the movie, is he also the comedian character, or is the character just? him no it's just the character okay. so in the film it, he's just Dolomite okay. and he's a pimp and a nightclub owner who is serving time after being set up by street rival Willie Green mm. uh, played by the film's director Derville Martin 
And uh, with the assistance of Queen Bee and a sympathetic warden, he gets out and starts taking names to get revenge on Willie Willie Green. It's uh, and that's basically all it is, yeah. really. You've you've seen it recently. I saw it so very recently. Is it funny? Yes, it's very. It is. And funny. it was very. It, it's really like entirely self-funded, right? Like yeah, it's a he very paid for almost, indie yeah, film. He yeah. paid for almost all of it out of his own pocket. Um, and Sounds like the new one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. It's all, it also features some of the finest toasts in the cinema, and uh, by are you talking about pieces of bread and warmed up? Or by toast, I do not mean pieces of bread. Oh, okay. I mean it in the dance hall rhythm sense, ah. uh, like not here, here, yeah, either, yeah, yeah. none of that. Uh, toasting is the act of talking or chanting in some kind of melodic or rhythmic fashion. It's absolutely mental. Uh, the action sequences are awful, but it's it's Black Dynamite. You've seen Black Dynamite. Yeah. I do like Black Dynamite. Black Dynamite, yeah. So there's no real effort to make it in any way believable. Well, but because it's but a parody again, of yeah, that, it's parody. and Dolomite is very similar to that. Okay, and that's what I was wondering yeah. if it had already kind of. I wasn't aware that there was already satire, satiric black exploitation. Yeah, no, he's definitely got a sense of humor. This chap. Nice. Yeah, it's very funny. I'd uh, like to see it. I would very much like to see it. It's. It is. I'm really pleased with showing it actually. But also, do you remember Taffy Lewis from Blade Runner when he goes to the snake? He, uh, charming place. Yeah, and oh, he yeah. goes to the and the bar is yeah, like, yeah. "Hey, Louis, the man is drag, even the drink." Yeah, yeah. yeah, that Taffy Lewis. He's in. He's in. This oh wow! Yeah, wow. <laughs> His name is High Pike. It's a good name. Yeah, it's a great name. I like it. Uh, anyway, Dolomite second, and that's at nine thirty. Close Up is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which hosts a wonderful range of homegrown content from film, pop culture, and the arts to sports, education, and politics. You can find podcasts of all shapes and sizes at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Sylvia. Yeah. We want to talk about October 6th. We want to talk 6th. about October 6th. Okay. And uh, your new curatorial takeover of kink on screen which was formerly hosted by liz hay so on sunday october 6th at 9 30 p.m um the first film of our series is vampiros lesbos it is well actually a really fun way to describe it is how the soundtrack was released later uh as a sexadelic dance party oh yeah it was and it charted in the uk it sure did it did yeah. really really well in 1995 <laughs> uh when it came out on compact disc sounds about um, right yeah However, the film was made in 1971. It was a West German production, but it was a Spanish director. His name is Jesus Franco. And I don't know if it's pronounced Jesus or not, because I think he might be Portuguese and it has a different pronunciation, but I do not know Portuguese or Spanish for that matter. So Jesus it is. Might be Jesus. It might be Jesus. So he is like the definition of indie filmmaking. Uh, he never had any financial backing for any of the 160 films that he made, yeah, uh, which is a lot. Um, some of them range from um, like X-rated pornographic films to the more like Vampiros Lesbos exploitation type films. The story is about a uh, American woman uh, that works for a well, she works for an American company in Turkey. I don't know what she does. The plot of this film 
is flimsy at best, and that's what makes it really fun. Yes. So this woman, uh, she is seduced by this countess, and she is completely overtaken by this mesmerizing, beautiful, wonderful, um, sexy woman who is played by Soledad Miranda. And she's interesting. She was in um, six of Franco's films uh, in a one-year period. She was tragically killed in a car crash in 1971, so the year that this film came out. So just as her career was taking off, she was tragically killed. And she, I believe, was a performance artist and a dancer. And in the film, it kind of features some of her performance art. Like it opens with her in lingerie, taking it off and putting it on another woman and kind of enacting this like vampire seduction. Also, some of the symbolic imagery in this film is very blatant. Like it keeps on going to like a scorpion, a moth in a net, a scorpion, a moth in a net. Uh, and there's a lot of that. The soundtrack, as I mentioned, is it's totally fun. It's like psychedelic 70s, jazzy, frenetic, sexy, fun. And the the production design and the costumes are great if you love kind of the go-go aesthetic. I guess I picked it for kink on screen. Um, for a number of reasons. One of them being it's October, it's spooky season, they're vampires. More importantly, they're lesbian vampires, which is where like our popular of idea of vampires, especially the sexy vampire, is very much rooted in lesbian vampires. So the short novella Carmilla actually predates Dracula in uh, published fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's about also a lesbian vampire. And I didn't pick it because I, I don't believe lesbians are kinky lesbian sex is sex the reason i chose it for kink on screen specifically was more about how vampires deal with the taboos of sex and death and putting those things together also in the time of a lot of this vampire mythos homosexuality was also taboo so it would be you know titillating for audiences maybe yeah still to this day i'm sure but also uh, specifically in the 70s for exploitation films also Things that are popular in certain kink communities are a vampire fetish, um, biting, sometimes together and or separately, blood fetish, whether it's like blood play or fluid exchange, that kind of thing. But the important thing with kink is always be safe and consensual. So <laughs> whatever you're into. Um, so yeah, that's what, the, that's what the film's about. That's why I chose it. I'm really excited to see it on the big screen because it is kind of like a wacky thing to watch in 2019. Like it's, it's almost like because it's been, you know, like over like 40 years that it makes it almost charming again in some way, even though um, I'm sure it could be seen as uh, offensive and I I choose to see it as very charming and very, depending on which lens you're watching it through, it could be like, oh, this evil vampire, this temptress, this seductress, she's corrupting this this beautiful young professional woman but you could also see it as like a tragic love story because of homophobia or because of stigma around lifestyles and that kind of thing that it could be seen as as a tragic love story and i kind of like that reading of it what have you got any other picks for uh kink yet or no i know in december i believe we're going to show the piano teacher awesome um so yeah pretty, one of my favorites yeah it's a it's a great film and then for the rest of the year i kind of have like a short list of things but it's just making sure that they're available and whatnot first because i guess i can say it on here i wanted to show in october i was very tempted uh david cronenberg's crash yeah um yeah. but it is really hard to get in canada i guess it's only has a european distributor and it costs a lot of money mm-hmm. and that's really difficult but i thought crash like not because i particularly 
enjoy it as a movie, but I think that there could be definitely interesting discussion about people that get off on uh, car violence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's on uh, Sunday the 6th at 9.30 and oh, is there anything uh, going on like around the event as well? Um, like, I don't know yet. Before? I have some, yeah. I have some uh, asks out. However, we do. Um, as of this morning, I got an email um, saying that the um, the tickle trunk on white they oh, are yeah. going to be a presenting partner. So that's super great. They're a great mm -hmm. um, shop if you like tickling. Ha happen, happen to be in the neighborhood, want to go to your friendly neighborhood sex shop. That's it's a great one to go to. It has awesome yeah. resources, really friendly staff. They're great. Now, hear this. Produced by the Edmonton Community Foundation, the Well-Endowed podcast is hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonking and is produced by Lisa Pruden. The show explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. Check out the latest episode in which Chris Chang-Yen Phillips tells us about a holographic last will and testament from World War II. And Alison McCollum and Mike Simon share their expertise on why it's a really good idea to have a plan for your estate. Go to and subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Back once again with another season of Boom Bap is Ramnik Tung, who you may know as the voice of Five River Beat on CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CGSR.com. Bing! Yeah, and it just won a national award. As well? Yeah, it did. I saw that on Facebook. Yeah, it was... Uh... I was kind of flattered by it. I was also kind of shocked because it's such a silly show. We're always talking about wrestling. And then all of a sudden, this Stranger Things inspired Bollywood program won a national award. It's amazing. Yeah. Whenever I have one of my guests, um, dear friend of mine, Jespri, whenever he's on the show, he always wants to mention we're on the national award winning. When we sink to the lowest level, yeah. he always says, this is the national award winning Five River Beat. I like when we start talking about pornography and stuff like that. Absolutely. I've started uh, <laughs> saying uh, unofficially that the trivia night is the best trivia night in North America. I wouldn't uh, be surprised. I think it's because I wrote that down somewhere. Yeah. So I claim that it's been written. Anyway, uh, Boom Bap is a series that is uh, so far up my street, it might as well move in with me. Uh, last season we screened Beat Street, Crush Groove, Colors, Do the Right Thing, and we even managed to commemorate the passing of John Singleton. Uh, with a one-off show of Boys in the Hood. Uh, so that brings us up to about 91. And I know you went backwards a tiny bit for last month's criminally underrated House Party. I um, did, and that's because I wanted to screen House Party before yeah. Boys in the Hood. I wanted to be chronological, but John Singleton passed away. Exactly. And, and I pitched it to the programmer. I'm like, we should screen this film, and I'm willing to introduce it. Yeah. But for the most part, I wanted to do it chronologically. Absolutely. And you've done that uh, thus far. But next month, it's October. Oh, sorry, yeah. this month, by the time this is being played. Yep. Um, which, uh, as far as I'm concerned, means only one film, Candyman. You think so? Absolutely. I was trying to get Tales from the Hood. And talk us through that. I, I honestly, I think, I think Candyman is is another underrated masterpiece. It, it is a masterpiece. Yeah. I think it's uh, alongside Scream. It's probably the greatest horror film from the '90s, and it's it's the first to actually deal with like race relations. Uh, here's a guy that's a product of white guilt. His ashes were scattered across Cabrini Green, the most notorious housing projects in um, in America. Mm -hmm. Right? There's more to this film than just killing. And yeah. it's got a Philip Glass score, which is just hypnotic and adds to the mystique of the Candyman. It's amazing. But I wanted to do Tales from the Hood because it had a hip-hop soundtrack. 
yeah. Candy Man doesn't. I'm gonna somehow find a way to connect it to hip hop. It's been sampled. Philip Glass has been sampled by MC Ren, Lil John. There was this track by Cannabis called Genibus yeah. that samples Philip Glass's score from Candy Man. But I am going to set up a, a playlist for DJ Gozar where he only plays tracks that deal with uh, horror-related elements, murder, serial killers, mm -hmm. and also tracks that sample horror films. So like Phantasm, Suspiria, Candyman, A Nightmare on Elm Street. So we're going to have a horror-inspired... Uh, There's got to be a bunch of uh, hip-hop that's used Candyman oh, as, yeah, sure. as, a, as, a, as a lyric even. Uh, I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. You know what is surprising though? There isn't many rappers from the Cabrini Green projects. Yeah. There's uh, shows like Good Times, which are essential to the uh, initial lot of hip hop stars. And uh, the film Cooley High, mm -hmm. which if if we continue doing Boom Bap, I would like to do uh, a spinoff of the OG classics, the films like uh, The Mac, Coffee, the films that inspired the initial hip hop generation, and yeah. Cooley High is one of them. And that was set in Cabrini Green. Okay. Yeah. Um, so just to give it a little bit of context, uh, in case you haven't seen it. So it's based on the Clive Barker novel, and uh, where Barker's story revolved around themes of British class, or the British class system in contemporary Liverpool. Uh, Bernard Rose, who wrote and directed Candyman, uh, refit the story to Cabrini Green um, uh, to focus on themes of race and social class in inner city United States, which you've already mentioned. But um, yeah, it's a it's a, a notorious housing project in Chicago, which uh, gained its reputation because of a number of contributing factors. It was uh, located near Chicago's gas refineries in the 1850s, and the giant pillars of noxious gas and flames that filled the air led to its uh, less than desirable nickname Little Hell. And the area changed drastically after many of the factories closed in the wake of World War II, leading to mass unemployment, and the city's financial constraints led to uh, eventual basic neglect. So that's how it kind of like, you know, started to just erode. And then by the 70s, this phenomenon of white flight uh, meant the population of Cabrillo Green and the projects like it across America were overwhelmingly African-American, largely because of white America's ever-present fear-mongering of its black population and uh, this only contributed further to the types of racial segregation and economic division that would become synonymous with the way in which america has treated non-white citizens throughout history so do you think Candyman, Candyman is symbolic of that white fear definitely and it's a monster that white people created as well just like the housing projects absolutely yeah the film is a is a dissection of those horrors yeah it's not how, just a slasher film no no, no philip glass said yeah. that uh, he was kind of upset that his music was used for this film because he just found it to be a slasher film. It's not. No. It's not like Friday the 13th or uh, Halloween. There's a deeper intellectual component to it. It actually deals with race relations. It's a socially responsible horror film. Yes. To categorize it as a slasher film is pure idiocy. And Candyman is the only film to ever scare me. I couldn't sleep at night after watching Candyman because it was so similar to that Bloody Mary tragedy. Yeah. Right? Or Bloody Mary myth. And to this day, I won't do Bloody Mary in the mirror. Even have, if I'm drunk with my friends, hey, let's do Bloody Mary. I'd be like, hell no. Have you ever done Candyman in the mirror? N no, I haven't. But I'm not afraid. If you want to go in the washer, we'll do it right now. <laughs> you say that. Brave words, my friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you get butchered with a hook and I yeah, get arrested. Exactly. <laughs> Candyman. It's going to be screening on the 24th. Yeah, we're screening a 30, lot of 24. horror classics at Metro. We're screening Halloween. Uh, October is an amazing month. 
I mean, what else is being screened? You're um, more in the know. I do. I've got a whole big list of it. Let me Evil Dead. Evil Dead Daddy is screening, Man, which Halloween. is a, a brand new print with a brand new score. I spoke to Kevin about that one already. Uh, Silent Hill, Resident Evil, Vampiros, Lesbos, Aliens, Dr. Butcher, Drag Me to Hell, Fascination, Miss 45, The Canadian Election, um, <laughs> Tigers Are Not Afraid, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, and we're showing Midsummer again because uh, that's been doing very well. I, I honestly thought you were going to be like, why Candyman? There's no hip hop in Candyman. How is hip hop connected to Candyman? Well, to me, I think... Uh, and it's a bit of a, a detour as well, because we're jumping from 90 to 93. Or is it 92? Candyman's 92. 92, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, it was the same year as the Rodney King riots then. So when you say why Candyman, for me, I think the connection between... It's not that it's not a, a, an overt, overtly a hip hop film, but hip hop in America tells a story of black culture in america as well so in in a way Candyman is like hip-hop because white people feared it when they found out that nwa was on top of the nielsen sound scan charts yeah they were terrified and the way in which um candy man is kind of orientalized by virginia madsen is similar to how hip-hop is orientalized by ignorant white folk Uh, for me there is no why it's perfect pick and uh i'm dead excited to see it on the big screen it's gonna be great with the philip glass score and just it's just got some absolutely beautiful photography in it as well and it also captures one of the four essential elements of hip-hop too with graffiti absolutely loads of it graffiti is beautiful more than graffiti more than any of the other films that you've shown there's more graffiti in that film i think beat street had quite a bit it did but like it's everywhere but that moment where she comes out of um tony todd's mouth yeah and her film finishes i love that shot yeah yeah no it's a beautiful film um what else uh where are you gonna go from here well, I want to go back to 91 because okay. we're jumping from 90 to 93 or 92. 92 so I want to go yeah. back to 91 with New Jack City. Perfect. And then 92 Juice. And then uh, I think I have one more film this season. Okay. Likely Menace. Menace is a good finale. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm Candyman excited too, is, I would say it's top five horror films of the 90s. Thursday the 24th at 7 p.m. Uh, make sure you get there early around sort of 6.30 probably or even 6 because yeah, uh, Gilzar uh, is going to strictly horror inspired set yeah and you know what dress the part absolutely it's 24th if you dress up like Candyman that'd be so awesome that would yeah but I'm telling you right now if you're white no blackface thank you for coming in no thanks for having me I appreciate it always turn up in October yeah in, and come in, to in trivia your, in your gladdest rags and uh, come to trivia come to, yeah. come to trivia you yeah, know come what challenge definitely Blue come to trivia yeah absolutely I'll see you again next time for sure man awesome We've also got uh, the direct play event, which is a double feature, and I'm hoping he brings in all of his arcades again. Yeah, which, normally uh, we'll have like awesome. games on the screen before and stuff. Yeah, which is like yeah. an well, amazing thing cool. to do. Um, but we've got uh, Resident Evil at seven and Silent Hill at nine thirty, and I know both of you guys. Uh, I'm pointing at Sylvia and Nick have seen uh, both these films. That is true. Yeah, yeah. Yep. that is correct. Yep. Uh, uh, we were talking about Resident Evil last time, but you weren't here. Yeah, because no, Paul Anderson. Because of Paul Anderson. Yeah, he directed Resident Evil. Oh, yeah. Um, not Paul Thomas Anderson. Not Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> Anderson. Yeah, yeah. No. yeah, yeah. This is just, it's yeah, just Paul, it's Paul W. It's, Anderson. It's good. It's, uh, right. Yeah. It's good irony. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're both pretty fun. Like, 
And shockingly, because video game movie adaptations are so terrible, those are actually probably two of the best video game movies ever made. Yeah, certainly the Silent Hill one. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great adaptation of the lore of mm. that game. Yeah. And they did a really good job of rendering some of the monsters and yeah. stuff. I rem- um, I, and I, yeah, yeah, I liked it because it felt like I felt like I was in Silent Hill mm-hmm. and I f- feel like that's the most important part of adapting that game to a movie. Totally. I remember watching it when I was like 13, 14. And that was around the time that Uwe Boll's films were really coming out a lot. And he did a lot of video game films. So that was kind of the bar that I was expecting because he made like a House of the Dead movie. Right. And then I remember watching Silent Hill and kind of being blowing, blown away at some of the effects and the where, where the yeah. film goes and some of the monster design. And yeah, it's again, it's pretty fun. It's worth checking and out. And I'm kind of, I liked how it brought Silent Hill to popular consciousness in a way because yeah. it was a, like it's a Japanese published game and it like, it was, the game was super popular in North America, of course, but it's just like the, the movie again. Yeah. Just totally having like, um, the creepy nurses and pyramid head, mm-hmm. like seeing people dress up as those things yeah. at conventions is very satisfying. They're to both, me. <laughs> they're both very iconic, like iconographic. I, I, that's not a word. They, They're very iconic. iconographic. Yes, thank, yeah. thank you. Iconographic. Sure. In like the gaming community, Resident Evil is experiencing a huge resurgence in popularity. The last two games, like they remade the second game, the original second game, and people love it. And yeah, it's so. And that first movie is much better than the joke of a franchise it went to become. Yeah. With absolute yeah. garbage. For, like there's seven of them, and most of them are completely. It'd be very interesting to see uh, if Scott is intending. Uh, Scott is the curator of that season. If he's intending to bring Silent Hill to play on the big screen, I'm not sure how well it translates to the time that we have to play it in. But yeah. it seems like it was a very atmospheric. Mm-hmm. The first sort of game yeah. like that. The music in it know. is incredible. It's, it's wild. One. Yeah. 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 Awesome. yeah. And the Resident Evil film, it's not. It's not like the game. I wouldn't call no. it a successful adaptation of the no. story. Like they use the same names, but everything's very different. Right. And if you're a fan of the games, then maybe that will irritate you. But it's it's almost its own decent. Yeah. Like it's like a, it's like fan fiction. It's really fun <laughs> yeah, yeah. Resident Evil fan fiction. Yeah. That's what I would yeah, say. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> that is, that is, that is not saying? fun fan fiction. Are you going to share that for kink? <laughs> Definitely not, because it is a horrible example of any semblance of the BDSM community. The 7th, come get your game on. That's Resident Evil at 7 and Silent Hill at 9.30. And uh, that's a sound endorsement from the pair of you. Let's uh, move on to Wednesday, a mere two days later. At, what a week. Uh, what a week indeed. Starting at 6.30, we've got... This is part of a new uh, curatorial. Uh, so, Heather, talk. Uh, you, what, what is Bring on the Extraterrestrials? Uh, it's a ongoing series of sci-fi films. Oh, you're putting me on the spot here. I'm trying <laughs> to remember the... I, I believe it's a university professor who is okay. ca- kind of contextualizing how extraterrestrials have been represented in different ways in film. Okay. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. That's, a, really, that's, a, that's an excellent... Uh, Proposal. I'm 100% on board for this. Yeah, so um, I think it's going. I can't remember if it's going for just this semester, or if it's kind of running into the the spring semester as well, at the, or the winter semester at the U of A. But nonetheless, we are starting with Aliens, a classic. And yes, it is a sci-fi action, an classic. absolute classic. I love Aliens. Yes. I don't I think do. I love it quite as much as Alien. And you were correct in that thinking. But I did watch Alien Covenant yesterday morning. And that it's a very bad movie. <laughs> unfortunate to even have to mention it in the same sentence, isn't it, really? But because Aliens is awesome. One of my favorite Metro Cinema memories of all time is when um, 
when we showed um, Alien, Aliens, and then Prometheus on New Year's Day. Oh, wow. And I was at the cinema all day living in the beautiful world of Alien, and it made mm -hmm. me very, very happy. Ridley yeah. Scott's dream. Ridley yeah. Scott's world living <laughs> in this little bubble. Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I remember watching Aliens as a young kid. Like, I feel like it would come on television late at night or something. And so before, I think before I even saw Alien, I had seen Aliens several times. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I too. think I'd even seen Alien Cubed uh, <laughs> multiple times. Like, that's what it's called, right? It's like no. Alien with a Alien 4? No, like, no, no, Alien no, no. Alien 3 is like, oh, like, yeah. like a yeah. Yeah. The David yeah. Fincher one. Yes, yeah. I had seen Alien. But underrated as well, by the way. Underrated, yeah, it's quite good. Yeah. yeah, so I, uh, but, and then when I, and then I actually finally discovered Alien as like an older youth. <laughs> and then I never really watched the sequels ever again so i like i i now have very little memory of aliens i know that for a lot of people my age because of that mm. thing where it was like on tv all the time it's everyone's kind of everyone has very well, warm feelings i feel like aliens is like it's the popcorn movie yeah. of that franchise yeah. like yeah. it's it's the military action adventure yeah. it's mm -hmm. not necessarily like what Alien did so well was the the space thriller, mm -hmm. like the space horror, the yep. monster that you can't see. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so compelling about it. Whereas I feel like Aliens is a completely different style of movie, yeah. which is really interesting I mean, that you can do that within a franchise, like yeah. totally flip the style. Yeah, it's, um, it's very James Cameron. And it's like, oh, yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah. James and, Cameron. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. And I think like they each have their merits and, and I don't think it's fair, like I don't think it's wrong to say that both I know, and certainly, like, the reason that I really, really love the Alien franchise is because of Aliens, because the first one I saw was, was Aliens. I'd yeah. seen it probably five or ten times before yeah. I ever saw Alien, which I now prefer. Yeah, What's cool is that even though it's completely different in tone, I think it, I'm going to say that I think it still holds the vision of the universe that, like, Ridley Scott had and the world building totally. is still there. Um, and so I think it, it succeeds, and then it succeeds as an action film yes. as well, totally. It's, yeah. it's an iconic action film. Yeah. That's what James Cameron, uh, like, he gets it. He understands, like, those quotable, big, yeah. cinematic... They come out at night. <laughs> mostly. mostly. Yeah. So that's uh, Wednesday the 9th at 6.30, and uh, it starts early. I don't remember it being a particularly long film. Maybe it is. I don't know. But anyway... That's, I'm sure it has a sort of uh, a pre-film talk or something interesting to go along with it. And that might be useful and we can all learn what Bring on the Extraterrestrials is all about. So we'll move on to Sunday the 13th um, because we have a new release which is called uh, Honeyland. It's going to be the first one of the day at one o'clock. Uh, and uh, Heather, you wanted to mention something about that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a documentary from Macedonia. It won several awards at Sundance this year. I think the, just the reason I wanted to kind of highlight it is because, you know, a lot we show a lot of documentaries at Metro, and I think a lot of them tend to be fairly straight ahead. Great for digesting information about a topic, but maybe aren't creative in terms of how they tell the story. This is uh, one that looks very artfully done. It's done in the way a bit more verite where the camera is is kind of watching these people but not injecting any kind of commentary and yet from everything I've heard and read about it it sounds like the kind of underlying themes are quite clear here so it's about a B-52 
beekeeper or bee hunter. A bee hunter. hunter. Bee hunter. I think you said. Um, so this is not someone who keeps bees, but rather who goes and seeks out honey. And it's I think it's kind of coming from an indigenous culture and. It sounds like the movie is really dealing with um, sustainability and colonialism and kind of how um, this practice is dying out, even though perhaps it's like um, a more effective way long term to collect honey. Again, just it looks really beautiful and uh, looks like an interesting portrait into a culture that we don't know very much about. So All right. later in, in that day, 9.30 for the, uh, this, uh, the new homicidal screening is Drag Me to Hell, directed by Sam Raimi. So we've got a couple of Sam Raimi films this month. I think this is the first of two, I'm sure. We're showing Evil, Evil Dead, Dead later Evil on. Dead. But Drag Me to Hell was from 2009? Now, I've just watched this very recently. It's a very silly film. It's very enjoyable. In, in, yes, exactly like yeah, in the vein. If you're a Sam Raimi yeah. fan, you're, you're going to enjoy it. Like, it's, it's, a, it's another good Halloween popcorn movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. which I think is probably why uh, Homicidal have chosen it. Although, well, drag. I think uh, it's, it, it feels like an 80s movie shot like a 2009 movie. Yeah, yeah I guess it's true. It does. It has, it has a lot of the sort of the hallmarks of Sam Remy. So occasionally you get that very strange, you'll, you know, um, things stop very abruptly in front of the camera mm-hmm. and it kind of like forces you to jerk in your seat and things like that. That's kind of how he likes to make you feel, yeah. you know, like you're going to throw up. There's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a definitely, a, it's definitely funny. Is there like, I, I saw it when it came out and I, I'm, trying to remember it but I feel like there's maybe something about the central character that makes it campy like she's not just doesn't seem like a horror hero in some way she's kind of you know it's like if all this happened to some very very normal person I watched this movie last year around Halloween that's like that's Mm -hmm. what you do Mm -hmm. and uh, I have no memory of the main character then maybe that like, is the point. Uh, yeah, I, you know? I just I think it's <laughs> like, like she's, she's not like you she can put yourself in her shoes because like I yes. I remember points of the movie and I remember like the especially the scene in the car like I found that super unsettling. Well, and I think the, the whole kind of uh, thrust of the film is it's about a woman who uh, denies an elderly lady a uh, a loan extension on her house and she puts a curse on her, um, and it's about the the taking. Um, responsibility for the, the decisions that we make and this is the consequence of that poor decision or well, not necessarily poor decision but she felt felt it would improve her career by making a tough decision and saying no and, and, and you know because um, she works for a loan company it suits them better to not loan money to people that can't pay it back um, so that's the result of it and I think the, the idea is that you're supposed to have some sort of familiarity with that or some sense of um, you know empathy Mm-hmm. Um, but given that you've both forgotten <laughs> yeah. that that was even like well, <laughs> no I remember that part of it but more like it was like defining features about the main character she's like yeah. a, she's like an every person yes. kind yeah. of character yeah. and, like there's not a lot of definition around her unless yeah. I am just no, I was I think, focusing on other no. things I in the think movie. in other horror movies mm-hmm. often there's like this thing where the you know a regular person is transformed by these events happening to yeah. them and they become whether they succeeded or not in the end, they kind of become this hero, this like strong person. And I just, my memory of this movie is that she's kind of just, she's someone who... She's no Ash. (laughs) 
sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's just, she's, she's just a regular person up until the very end. Yeah. That's, uh, that's going to be at 9.30. That is a homicidal screening. They're always fun. Do come. There's probably a bar which will help uh, immensely. And then they'll be doing a drag performance beforehand or they can have hosted or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think they ever haven't. So, uh, yeah. And it'll be Halloween themed as well, probably. That'll be great. They're they're very excited. Homicidal is like, I see their performances like at the Buckingham or. They're amazing. They're, they're just so fun to watch. So even if our description of drag me to hell doesn't entice you, (laughs) the show will contextualize it in a way that'll make it more enjoyable than you know. If you've never seen a drag version of the Babadook. You haven't seen it. You haven't lived. Yeah. (laughs) Litfest is Canada's original non-fiction festival running from October 17th to the 27th in Edmonton. Venues across the city will play host to authors and presenters from home and afar, giving their perspectives on true crime, historic mysteries, gender identity, mental health, food culture, and many topics in between. You can see the full list of presenters at litfestalberta.org. There's also a pre-festival series called Orthopods coming October 3rd to the 5th and there'll be a podcast connection. Festival passes are sold out, but you can still get tickets to individual events. Get yours today at litfestalberta.org. Now, if you live in Edmonton, there's a good chance you're already familiar with my next guest. He's been co-curator of Deadfest for a number of years, as well as being the owner and operator of the Lobby DVD shop on White. You may have also seen him DJing at the Black Dog or shouting out things like Legs 11 at Punk Rock Bingo at the Tavern on White. He is, of course, Kevin Martin. He's here to talk with me about Evil Dead, starring in a movie, and maybe other things too. So, Kevin, welcome. Now, first off, October 27th, Evil Dead. Oh yeah! Oh, why not? Let's just start there. Right on. So that has been confirmed. I do. I do. Well, let's just assume that it has. Yeah. No. It. I I believe it has. Yeah. We're just working out the details. But yes, it it has been. So this is a brand new, a brand new restoration. Absolutely. It is a apparently Sam Raimi approved 4K restoration with a brand new score, from what I hear. And he got one of his good pals to do the score too. That's amazing. A man who has worked with Raimi for quite some time. It's it's sad that like uh, th- this year uh, there will not be a full Dead Fest Film Festival. This is actually breaking our 11 year streak, but you know we, we have our reasons why. But have no fear, everybody. 2020 is a whole new thing. We do want to give something back to the fans and for the appreciation of supporting us over the last uh, decade plus one year. So we thought, you know, at first we, we were like, what what can we show? And uh, you know, obviously we were toying around with you know, Rob Zombie's movie and all that, but we don't know what the heck's going on with that here in Canada right no, now. There's, no. there's no distribution. And then all of a sudden, thanks to Pete at the Metro, we discover that Sam Raimi has this beautiful brand new version of Evil Dead that he's been showing off. And I believe it premiered at the Alamo Draft House, or it will be this fall. We get a lot of films from uh, from Draft House. They've oh, been doing Draft some House. fantastic so work. So good, yeah. yeah. But yes, it is a brand new 4K restoration of Evil Dead 1, the original granddaddy of them all. Uh, it's always funny that it says release date 1983, but... Well, I think the release date I've got is 81. 81, yeah. yeah. Because before that, they made Into the Woods, which yeah. was kind of their their 8mm version of the movie. But what's exciting about this is, well, first of all, it's Evil Dead on the big screen. I mean, there's never a better time to grab a group of friends together, have some beers, and enjoy the goodness that is. Plus, it's the week of Halloween, so everybody will be in the right mood and spirit. And more importantly, I am so fascinated by this new score, because... Yeah. You know, we, we know the movie, and I'm like, why would Raimi want new music on top of this thing? But I assume he knows what he's doing because he's Sam Raimi, and why not? In, yeah. And yeah. him we trust, especially when it comes to the property of Evil Dead. So, 
Yeah, no, uh, looking forward to it. I do believe the date is Sunday the, uh, the 27th uh, before Halloween, and it's at 7 p.m., which is a great time because I know it's a Sunday. People got to work on the Monday, but it's early enough to let you guys know that it's happening. You can make plans, work around it. You don't want to miss this once and well, I was going to say once-in-a-lifetime screening, but of this version, perhaps, in a movie theater, yep. especially from your good friends at the Metro Cinema. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty amazing pick, actually, because the last, well, actually, the last Evil Dead film I remember showing was The Army of Darkness on 35mm, which yeah, was we, a absolutely beat-up print. It was amazing we, to show We've that. owned that print. Well, we screened that print at the Metro, uh, I believe, four times now. Yeah. I'll give all the credit to Derek Clayton on that one. He managed to find that print, I I don't know, it was on eBay or something? Wow. We, we paid like, uh, if I remember right, Derek told me we paid 500 bucks for it. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so, amazing. you know, obviously every time we screen it, we got to pay universal rights, but who cares? We own the print. And I remember the last time we showed it, it did snap, crackle, and pop, and skip a scene, but nobody cared. Right, so that's going to be October 27th at 7 p.m. 7 p.m. I think it's a perfect time. It is a perfect time. Yeah. And uh, also there's a bar, so, you know. That is true. Always remember that. Now, um, i got to ask you as well, because something that you've been plugging over the last little while is the film uh, that's been directed by uh, Cody Kennedy, is that uh, right? Yes. And Tim Rutherford? This yes. This is the, uh, the video store. Well, it's a commercial right it's now. It's a commercial, right? yeah. yeah. So basically, over the last uh, seven years, we've been shooting a series of short films in uh, the video store. Uh, the first one that actually got us notoriety uh, was, uh, not outside of Edmonton anyways, was 2013's The Last Video Store. Uh, it was an 11-minute short film, and the minute uh, Fantasia Fest picked it up in Montreal, we all flew down, and we were welcomed with open arms. I remember our plane was delayed on the, the when we landed because there was a thunderstorm, and it was a midnight screening, and we were playing in front of the cult classic movie Samurai Cop, and I was thinking, there's no way there's going to be anybody out in that theater. But what I realized going to Montreal, and no offense to, to Edmonton or other cities and, and their, their their film festival audience, Montreal's film festival crowd are professionals. Like, yeah. <laughs> these cats get it. They make the awesome, they have a routine. Like, Dead Fest, we would thrive to be Montreal. Like, it's unreal what they do. So we, we get there, they treat us like, it's 11 minute short film, whatever. Yeah. Anyways, the theater was packed, sold out, 500 people. And I know they were all there to see Samurai Cop, obviously, but, man, they embraced our short film. Even, like, there was sound issues in the middle of the screening. I was like, oh, my God, I'm having a heart attack right now. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so that one got us our start. And then, obviously, we did our web series that we won for a Story Hive and Tellus TV in 2015, which was, like, even on Eric Canada flights, five-part series, straight-to-video B-Movie Odyssey. Keep in mind, all the shorts I'm talking about now are all available to watch on my new website for the video store. Uh, Welcome to 2019. Uh, uh, yeah. I, uh, I, I don't know anything about technology. Luckily, I have an eight-year-old kid that loves coming to my store, and his dad turned out to be a web designer, and he offered to do it for free. And he did a good job, I thought. Yes. So it's, uh, it's the lobbymovies.com, by the way, if you want to check out all of our shorts. So, uh, skip to 2017. Uh, we figured, well, why don't we shoot a commercial for Kev's store to help promote business because I'm dying here financially. And the boys, we film a quick one-day thing. We get the old crew back together. Problem is, the boys figure, you know what? This is better than just slapping it on YouTube right away from your store. So, of course, I'm angry. I'm like, guys, the whole point was to get it on the internet so people know about my store. Like, well, you know, Kev, let's do some tankering around with, like, CGI and stuff, and we'll make it better. It'll be good. Maybe the film festival will accept us. I was so pissed at the time because I'm like, this is not helping my store. Well, patience paid off. One year later, 
of all the film festivals to be the first to take it, South by Southwest in Amazing. Austin, Texas. Blown away. I'll never forget Cody Kennedy comes into my story. He's like, dude, South by Southwest is picking this up. I'm like, what? So people always ask, Cap, you going to the film fest and all that jazz? I'm like, dude, I run a video store. I, I can't go anywhere. But the boys <laughs> went. And uh, yeah, Cody told me like the first thing he did, he got invited to Robert Rodriguez's uh, Troublemaker Studio for lunch. That's all awesome. the young filmmakers did. And uh, so they played it. And one South by Southwest picks up your short film, and it's only four minutes and ten seconds. It uh, then all the other film festivals like, whoa, South by Southwest picked it up. Then we'll take it too. So since then, it's played in uh, Minnesota, New York, uh, oh, Estonia. Estonia. I didn't even know where the hell that was. That's like by Romania or like Transylvania. I'm like, that's cool. It's the farthest our stuff's ever played. Yeah. And uh, last month it played in the UK at Fright Fest, and uh, in October it's playing in Italy. Amazing. And actually, Cody is uh, along with uh, Josh, who's a a uh, regular co-star on all of our shorts is they're both flying out there. Josh Leonard, is yep. that right? Josh, Josh Leonard yep. lives in Vancouver now. You know, it's funny. It, it doesn't like uh, pay the bills. And um, obviously I don't consider myself an actor at any means. I'm just playing a grumpier version of myself. But if it helps my store get an extra 40, 50 bucks in sales a day, and people come in like, holy crap, this is where I saw those short films on the internet. I thought it was a movie set. I'm like, no, dude, it's a real video store. And yep. I'm the, the guy that runs it, not an actor. That's that's a really cool compliment too. All right, Kev. Uh, so uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to draw it to a close there for for this session. This is ridiculous. It's, you know, this should be. You gotta be somewhere. Pop. You gotta be somewhere in like fifteen minutes. Yeah, you but you know, I just want you to know, this uh, should be as long as it too, and far more entertaining. It Bye would be fun. <laughs> that one's staying in. Uh, so uh, <laughs> Evil Dead on the twenty seventh. Uh, go and see that. Yep. Uh, it's at seven o'clock. Can Will I plug my there? video store so you'll know where it is? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Don't forget to visit the Lobby DVD shop. I'm open seven days a week, noon-ish till seven-ish. I'm very one to six guaranteed. Kevin works in a bar. Let's yeah. not forget that. Some days I'm groggy. Uh, 10815 White Avenue. I'm a basement store below the Cambridge Daycare Center. And one more thing I want to plug, and this deals with the Metro Cinema. My good friend Lacey Page, she runs Dead Femme, which yep. is women in horror movies. And she's got not one, but two fantastic screenings coming up in October. First one is October 23rd. I know we think of it as a John Carpenter movie, but Deborah Hill did most of the, the legwork on the script. The original 1978 classic Halloween, which Absolutely. is Wednesday the 23rd. Can't change the soundtrack with that one. No. And the day after, uh, a Dead Fest movie we showed two years ago, and it's finally getting theatrical distribution, and that would be the lovely director, Issa Lopez, who was a great guest of ours, um, we're showing, or she's showing, not me. Tiger's not afraid. I got this theory in life real quick. Oh, and to hammer down how important the video store is. That night when we showed Tiger's Not Afraid and another movie called Low Life, which was made by a couple fine gentlemen, they were guests as well. After the movie ended, we went to the tavern for a bit and they're like, well, what do you want to do now? I'm like, well, there was their idea. Well, just grab a case of beer and go back to your video store. And these, I love the, the filmmakers we have today, they grew up in the video store. Yep. So they came to the shop. I think we drank till like five in the morning or six. And Issa was such a lovely. She kept trying to steal my Phantom of the Paradise helmet from my store. And I said, <laughs> You can have it when you send me like a case of Tigers and Afraid Blu rays. And she's like, Deal. That uh, one week later, with Ryan and Tim, who did uh, uh, Low Life, they're showing their movie in Chicago. Who's in the front row with his hand raised and gets asking Q&A and gets a picture with him? Quentin Tarantino. Loved Low Life because you haven't seen it. It's basically Pulp Fiction with a Lucha or Wrestler. Yeah. And then look at Issa Lopez. 
Guillermo del Toro, which I pumped hard. Yeah, you need to see this dude. This is like Pan's Labyrinth, Devil's Backbone territory. Saw it, loves it. I mean, he got his walk of fame a couple weeks ago, and he the first thing he said was, I want to thank Isa Lopez for being here. She's one of the best new Mexican female directors. Go see her movie. And now he's producing her movie, and I can't wait. So the moral of the story is, you come visit the Lobby DVD shop if you're an up-and-coming artist, and good things happen to you in the future. Myself, my life stays the same, but I'm just happy to see the success of others that have walked through the magical doors of my underground, archaic time machine of a video store. We just need to get the guys from Wakaliwood in there. Oh, dude. Google Wakaliwood, your mind will be just ruptured. Or if you forget the term Wakaliwood, just type in Ugandan action movies. And, uh, or more importantly, who killed Captain Alex? And, uh, which we showed at Dead Fest in 2015. And then we came back two years yeah. later and showed Bad Black. Bad Black is one of my absolute favorites. You'll one of never the funniest things oh, I've ever seen. It's you'll never fantastic. see a movie made with less money but more love than, no. than those ones. And absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. All right, Kevin. Um, I will, uh, we'll just do this again sometime. Oh, I think we have to, don't we? Pretty much. Thanks, Cheers. Man. Uh, let's uh, let's move on to Tuesday the fifteenth. Nick, I'm pointing at you at nine thirty. A nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. Mm. We Elm. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know. Probably one of the most important slash best horror films ever. That sounds like a very bold statement. Maybe that is personally. I definitely would put it top top five, maybe top ten. Yeah, I'm. I think like, and Freddy Krueger as an icon yeah. in horror is—he's so mm-hmm. important. He's so huge. His mythos yeah. and everything. Um, I yeah. I think that I support your bold it, statements, thank you. Nick. I also think like you know it, the Nightmare on Elm Street, especially the first one. I mean, the franchise, say what you will, but gets lumped in with like the the slasher Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth. But the idea behind it is actually so ingenious. And truly so terrifying. Yes. The idea that when you sleep is when you're most vulnerable. And that's yeah. when you are like, when Freddy Krueger will attack, when he'll get you. And, and if you see this movie when you're a little child like I was, it'll mm. mess you up for years. No, definitely. Yeah. I saw yeah. it when I was a child. And the scene of uh, the girl being attacked in in the dream and she starts uh, floating out of the bed yeah. was one of the yeah. more terrifying images. Some of the practical effects yeah. in that yeah. film are amazing. so they brilliant are. and yeah. they hold up really well. When Johnny Depp yeah. gets sucked in the bed. Oh, the God. 40 yeah. liters Also, of, Johnny yeah. Depp first movie performance. Yeah. yeah. So I have never seen it because <laughs> when I was a kid, I, this was one of the many horror movies that my brother would be watching, my older brother, and I. they would be like, you're too young, you can't mm-hmm. watch this. So there are all these movies that I've seen bits and pieces of but never the whole thing and yeah but i so it's very exciting to me that we're screening it because yeah. it's definitely one that i'm overdue mm-hmm. to catch up with and it's definitely one to see on the big screen yeah. like that's i'm actually i'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very of all, of all the things we're showing this month that's one that i've uh, i've never seen it on the big screen robert yeah, england is incredible perfect yeah. yes yeah. technically in this film i believe it's fred krueger not freddy oh okay. that's right they didn't well no in the song one that's two, true freddy's coming come. for yeah. you yeah um, but it's it's great. It's uh, terrifying. Scene. Yeah, it is. Thanks for that. <laughs> you're welcome. If you haven't seen it and you're interested in horror films, I think it's an absolute must watch. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would agree. I think it's one of those. So when I watch a lot, I, I watch quite a bit of horror mm. films, um, mm-hmm. and ninety percent of them are terrible. Like they're very there's yeah. there's there's so many of them. Like I had a subscription <laughs> to Shutter, and I just binged yeah, a yeah. whole bunch of horror movies, mm-hmm. and they're yeah. very very bad. And what 
where I think a lot of horror movies fail is they don't follow their own rules. Like, they don't set up a... Uh, either a, a mythology or a system of magic or supernatural or whatever. Whereas Nightmare on Elm Street has a perfect, um, yeah, a perfect mythology. It follows its own rules, and that's what makes it more terrifying mm. because it it seems so real. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, like, I'm sure there's things about it that have aged, and like you might, as a modern audience, like roll your eyes at or something. But if you really let yourself escape into the cinematic magic of it, it's it's genuinely terrifying, and it it's really really. I feel very brilliant. similarly about uh, the first of the Saw franchise. Yes. The very yeah. first one is still genuinely, I think, a really 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 well told story. Absolutely. And really good. Mm-hmm. The you know the rest of it exists on people's idea of the parts that they liked. And I don't know how many of those there are now. It must be eight. Uh, right, yeah, the 15th at 9.30, Nightmare on Elm Street. Come to there. Yeah, Thursday 17th at 9.30 is another returning uh, series called Not Your Final Girl, which is uh, usually very apt for October. The first one they're showing is Fascination from 1979. And uh, yes, it's a French horror film directed by Jean Rollin and starring uh, Frank Amai and Brigitte Lahaye. Uh, it focuses on a thief who seeks refuge in a remote chateau where two mysterious women are with potentially sinister intentions are residing. Has anyone seen this movie? Or at least even the trailer of it? It's nope. bizarre. And very similar in certainly description of uh, to uh, Vampiris Lesbos as well. Mm. It's very beautiful and uh, very unapologetically absurd. Uh, in its own way the eroticism in it feels very clumsy and unnatural but in a way that you can't quite stop watching it like it's very um, you know kind of car crash mm-hmm. amusing um, but the film starts off in the, in this abattoir with these two exquisitely dressed women um, Parisian women drinking ox blood uh, which they believe will cure anemia and uh, I promise I did watch the whole thing but I have no idea what the relevance of this opening scene is uh, I don't think it really matters because uh, you know 20 minutes later uh, the uh, you're into the storyline of the runaway thief who seems uh, intent on deflecting the advances of the very apparently bisexual women that reside in the chateau uh, and I've already given away more than I knew before I watched it so uh, you should probably come and experience it for yourselves as it's very silly part of the same festival or for, uh, uh, same uh, curatorial I guess uh, the next day uh, at 7 o'clock, we've got Miss 45 from 1981. I know you watched this, Nick. I did. What did you make of it? Uh, it is very much in the vein of a I Spit on Your Grave or Last House on the Left. It is a rape-revenge thriller. Yes. But it is set to the backdrop of... Is it's eighty one? Eighty one. It feels yeah. very. I mean, I haven't. I'm not. I wasn't alive during any of this, but it feels very <laughs> late seventies New, like New York. Yes. Uh, really yeah. seedy. Yeah. Very Every, Abel Ferreira. Yeah. Very Abel Ferreira. Mm-hmm. So it's all directed by him. Straight, I think I just enjoyed a lot of the imagery in it, and uh, so it's yes, directed by Abel Ferreira, and uh, it stars Zoe Tamerlis. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying that name correctly, but you know, weirdly, we showed that uh, that film Pasolini, which I keep insisting was a documentary but it wasn't because no. it had Willem Dafoe in it so this Zoe Tumerlis was initially supposed to play Pasolini in the Pasolini film mm-hmm. um, but she died at the age of 37 she was supposed to play Pasolini? yes fascinating yeah mm-hmm. um, but yeah she died uh, uh, you know um, at the age of 37 so it never happened and then 
Abel Ferreira later made it in in 2014 again uh, with um, with Willem Dafoe. But I think it's, it was a strangely enjoyable film. Kind of um, the soundtrack, the jazz soundtrack. The soundtrack is, wild. is unbelievable. Um, in that it seems to be just there's <laughs> a band that plays just the one song. It's grating. It's very it's, grating. Yes, it is. And you hear it about three times throughout, but it's uh, not quite too much to become irritating. I don't think, actually, for me. Yeah. This so was interesting as well because she the the, the so I, I can't remember the name of the uh, what's she called Thana she's called Thana. Um, uh, so she's named after the Greek god of death but she's mute mm-hmm. so she's you know sexually assaulted twice in one day which is what starts this whole thing going and uh, then she becomes Miss Forty Five and she's you know running around the city kind almost of, like a superhero yeah kind of speaking with her gun in a sort of you know that's the sort of most violent response to the things that have happened to her why is that any different to a sort of male uh, oriented action film right. where you know you're speaking through violence yeah they've almost and gone to the absolute it's extreme like their wife just, and kids yeah, are killed or exactly something, right? you know they just take away her voice entirely and just say we'll just speak with this uh, so there's a, it's, you know, it's an interesting one to read as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, I know the, the whole premise of Not Your Final Girl is to take, you know, the, the trope of the woman in peril and then turn it around and show the movies where they kind of get the upper hand by the end of the film. So the third film in the series is Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, which I have seen. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like about this girl who's coming of age it's like all about her period basically there's demon characters in this small i don't want to say it's a polish Czechoslovakian. Czechoslovakian. but yeah between like vampiros lesbos and um and this one and fascination it they're just all coming from this culture of mixing horror with eroticism and having a lot of fun with like production design and everything but not really caring about if the plots make a lot of sense yeah and they're really fun to watch there's even a fair bit of that in miss 45 because she's she works as a uh, a seamstress i think for a fashion designer mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of um, yeah they kind of put high fashion into these films. yeah definitely yeah, she dresses totally. like she ends up you know the, the in the en- end of the film she's dressed as a nun with this gun it's absolutely amazing for a large part portion of the film she's wearing this really extravagant cloak with a hood (laughs) and she's walking down the street and it's it's so obvious that she's some sort of vigilante or something yeah it's it's, like she's wearing a a costume it's 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 quite a wonderful that's great i kind of love films like that because then you can again like escape into the fantasy of it Mm -hmm. absolutely Um, especially when you're talking about films in the horror genre especially when they're dealing with trauma like so obvious trigger warnings for some of these films Mm -hmm. that you're able to like escape and like take trauma and like work through it in Mm -hmm. a different way the the only thing that's problematic sometimes like with vampiros lesbos like it's certainly not taking trauma and doing anything with it but often these films are male directors telling a story about female trauma and it's like hey let's think about that which I think all of these are yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. so it's like it's just something to contextualize the film they're still very worth seeing and very Mm -hmm. worth discussing yeah okay so the uh, fascination is on the 17th Miss 45 is on the 18th and then we have uh, Valerie and A Week of Wonders at seven on the twentieth, um, we are we have run out of time. We are going to have to draw this to a close, which is a shame. But uh, just before we before we run off, 
Uh, what else have we got for the rest well, of uh, greener grass? Uh, greener grass. We didn't have. Yeah, I just wanted. To eyes, but just, you can. Yeah, go for it. Well, it's just it, if you read the description of this movie, it sounds really dull. It's like suburban soccer moms fighting for status or something. And and I'm recently, I, I'm I am a soccer mom as a few months ago. And uh, congratulations. It, Who do you, you play yeah, for? It's great. I it looked it sounded really terrible. And then when I watched the trailer, I was suddenly very intrigued. So I would encourage everyone to go watch the trailer. In the trailer, they kind of there's a critic's quote that describes it as if Wes Anderson made a Black Mirror episode, but it's so, <laughs> like a kid turns into a dog in the trailer, okay. and like a woman just gives her baby to someone else because the b- other woman likes the baby and thinks she's cute, and she's like, oh, here, you can have her. And like it is, and it's very hyper, it's kind of like um, production designed in that um, Edward Scissorhands way with it's like all pastel colors. Yeah. Um, Tiki tacky houses. Yeah, it's seriously one of the most Gonzo trailers I've seen in a while. So word of the word of the week, Gonzo. Yeah. yeah. Did we have we said it a lot? No, I just no, that's no. just a great word that I would like to use more. <laughs> of, so. I'm really pleased you saved it to the end. Greener grass. That's a new release, and that is starting on Friday the 25th at seven o'clock. No, it's uh, not. It's starting on Wednesday the 23rd for CJSR Film Night. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, Nicholas. <laughs> That's why we need four of us here. What we do in the shadows. What we oh, do yeah. in the shadows. Again. Uh, again, Ooh. we've got Beetlejuice for Real Family oh, Cinema, which is, oh, uh, you know. Oh, Beetlejuice is great to and, see in the theater. And Adam's Family, also. Adam's Family. Adam's Adam's family? family the yes. original Another Wolfman classic. film. The, well, I mentioned, but, oh, no, we haven't actually. Yeah, the, the original Wolfman from 1941 at 1 o'clock on Sunday, 27th. Uh, Midsummer is the director's cut. you got another opportunity to see that on the 29th Free at 9.30. Huh? Free for students? It's gateway to cinema. So Shut it's free the front door. All students, doesn't matter what student you are. There wow. you go. That's awesome. What about a student of life? That's uh, I'm sure of times I've heard that joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, okay, well, I think that pretty much wraps things up. I apologize if you forgot anything, but go to metrocinema.org to find out more details on everything we've mentioned and all the stuff we didn't. Uh, thank you very much, Nicholas. Thank you. Thank you, Sylvia. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, thank you. And, you know, thanks from myself. John Carpenter is good. <laughs>